0: Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the ancient world. Episode 21, For the Sake of Distant Days. Asher Bonapal turned 46 years old, coincidentally the same age I turned this past week, in 639 B.C., For 30 years, he'd performed his duty to his people, his nation, and his god, by making war against Assyria's enemies and keeping the empire united, powerful, and secure. In the aftermath of Elam's destruction, he made a decision to devote the remainder of his life to a project he considered both a personal calling and, in a sense, an even higher duty. Preserving Neo-Assyrian primacy was certainly important. But preserving two and a half thousand years of Near Eastern history and culture? Well, that was something else entirely. Dark clouds were gathering on the horizon, and whether he knew it or not, the Assyrian king was Mesopotamia's last, best hope for outlasting the changes to come. To understand the forces at work, we need to go all the way back to the Bronze Age Collapse. During this chaotic period, Aramaic speaking desert tribes had flooded into the region between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, then slowly expanded toward the west. With the exception of the kingdom of Aram Damascus, the Aramaeans had never represented a potent military threat to the region, since they typically settled in rural areas and rarely sought political power in the urban centers of Mesopotamia the real threat they posed was far more subtle and, in the long run, far more devastating. It was, strangely enough, the unprecedented popularity of their language. You can forgive the Assyrians for not recognizing the long-term implications of the widespread use of Aramaic throughout their empire. If Mesopotamian history, all two and a half millennia of it, had taught one sure lesson, it was that every outsider who'd ever entered the region, as immigrant or conqueror, had either been driven off or fully subsumed into the dominant Sumerian Akkadian culture. There was simply no precedent for a disorganized group spreading any aspect of its culture, be it language, religion, or anything else, from the bottom up until it grew powerful enough to permeate the entire region. With the Aramaic language, two novel factors were at play. The first was the unprecedented growth of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, which had swallowed up entire nations and peoples whole. In particular, Tiglath-Pileser III's conquest and incorporation of the lands of Aram in the mid-8th century BC created a situation where the primary language of the majority of the empire's citizens changed, over a relatively short amount of time, from Akkadian to Aramaic. The second factor was that, in contrast to Akkadian cuneiform, which was still the province of highly trained professionals and took years to master, Aramaic was an alphabetic script, consisting of only a few dozen characters, and could be written or scratched onto any surface. This ease of use enabled widespread literacy, and soon the Aramaic language began making implicit demands on the rigid structures of Neo-Assyrian power. Communicating effectively with a population of mainly Aramaic speakers meant that scribes and officials needed to become bilingual. During the 7th century BC, reliefs began to depict scribes in pairs, one inscribing Akkadian cuneiform on a clay tablet, the other writing, in the Aramaic alphabetic script, on leather or papyrus. Slowly, Aramaic grew from an unofficial second language to one of two official languages to the dominant language of the empire. Over the same period, Akkadian was slowly relegated to the roles once occupied by ancient Sumerian, becoming the language of diplomacy, culture, and religion. When you combine the ascendancy of Aramaic with the perishable organic materials on which it was typically written, you begin to grasp the magnitude of the problem. The immediate threat was the loss of any written records older than a few decades, the typical shelf life of the new media. The far greater threat, which may have only been recognized by a few contemporary scholars, was that once Aramaic had replaced Akkadian entirely, there would eventually come a time when no one would be able to read Akkadian cuneiform. The language of 2,500 years of Mesopotamian history and culture was at imminent risk of becoming indecipherable, lost, and eventually forgotten. Some dim awareness of this monumental eventuality may have motivated the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal to begin the construction of the first great library of antiquity, established in his royal palace in Nineveh. Certainly, there had been other vast collections of documents held in other great cities of the ancient world, such as Mari in Syria and Akhenaten in Egypt. But Ashurbanipal's library appeared to be the first deliberate effort by a ruler to collect, copy, organize, and archive all of Mesopotamia's most important written works, from the most distant past down to relatively recent times. This vast storehouse, eventually comprising over 30,000 items, was dedicated by the great king himself for the sake of distant days. While the drive to preserve the heritage of the past was clearly a strong motivator, Ashurbanipal was also influenced by something much more basic, a love of reading. Considered a black mark in his youth, as king, Ashurbanipal celebrated his hard-won literacy, and proudly proclaimed, I, Ashurbanipal, within the palace, understood the wisdom of Nabu, All the art of writing, of every kind, I made myself the master of them all. I read the cunning tablets of Sumer, and the dark Akkadian language, which is difficult rightly to use. I took my pleasure in reading stories inscribed before the flood." He also wrote, in his own words, The best of the scribal art, such works as none of the kings who went before me had ever learnt. Remedies from the top of the head to the toenails, non-canonical selections, clever teachings, whatever pertains to the medical mastery of Ninurta and Gula, I wrote on tablets, checked and collated, and deposited within my palace for perusing and reading. Ashurbanipal immersed himself in the details of his project, personally writing to the governors of all major cities, and often requesting specific works by name. His main focus was obtaining copies of every important, famous, or otherwise notable work in the Mesopotamian canon. But he also gave wide latitude to local rulers, instructing them In case you should see some tablet or ritual text which I have not mentioned and which is suitable for the palace, examine it, take possession of it, and send it to me. Ashurbanipal's library became home to myths, epics, prayers, incantations, mathematical exercises, astronomical tables, and medical treatises, along with a variety of administrative documents, letters, and contracts. In short, the library was a reflection of all Mesopotamian learning and literature up to that time. It even contained a complete catalog of acquisitions, listing each item along with its origin. Among the most famous works contained in the library were an early Akkadian translation of the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Babylonian Epic of Creation, known as the Enuma Elish. A large number of documents were so called omen texts, used to predict the future based on detailed observations of the natural world. The Assyrians had a deep belief in the reliability of omens, but also thought their outcome could sometimes be avoided by petitioning the gods or even through trickery. One fairly quirky institution that resulted was the occasional appointment of a substitute king. When an omen suggested the king's life was in danger, a substitute king was put on the throne, and the true king was hidden away. Once the supposed danger had passed, the substitute king was, well, killed, and the true king restored to the throne. I really hope they at least let the substitute king throw a few big royal feasts and maybe dedicate a few monuments during the period they ruled, instead of just making them do boring neo-Assyrian paperwork. In addition to hosting his library, Ashurbanipal's North Palace was also home to some of the most stunning reliefs ever recovered from the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Along with the famous garden party scene, showcasing the head of the Elamite king Tumon hanging from a tree, there were numerous other reliefs depicting the recent war against Elam. Several present the Battle of Tiltuba, where Tuman met his end, while others show the taking of the cities of Madaktu and Hamanu. One detailed scene depicts an Assyrian officer introducing a new king, possibly Humban Nikash, to the Elamites of Madaktu, while another shows a meeting between Elamite and Urartian ambassadors in Nineveh. Additional scenes capture other instances of Neo-Assyrian triumph, including Ashurbanipal inspecting the treasures looted from Babylon, and Assyrian cavalry pursuing Arab soldiers on camelback. As remarkable as all these reliefs are, they're outshined by another sequence, widely considered the pinnacle of Neo-Assyrian art, depicting Ashurbanipal on a lion hunt. Lion hunting had been the exclusive province of Assyrian rulers for over a thousand years, and was intended to symbolize the king's role as protector of his people. Depictions of kings confronting lions alone and killing them with swords may not have been mere royal propaganda, since Mesopotamian lions, now extinct, were smaller than the African breed we know today. Ashur Nasserpal II, the first great neo-Assyrian conqueror, had several lion-hunting reliefs in his palace at Nimrud, but by far the largest collection were found in Ashurbanipal's palace at Nineveh. These reliefs, currently on display in the British Museum, are one of the first works of Assyrian art that I ever saw, and I don't mind telling you that I was absolutely blown away. The detail, the composition, just the absolute mastery of the art form are obvious in every panel. One of the more charming aspects is that there are scenes where the artist had to revise his initial sketch, for example making a lion's tail shorter, and you can see both the draft and final versions in the relief. I'm not going to try to describe the whole sequence in this podcast, just do yourselves a favor and check them out online sometime. So, while we're talking literature and art, I also wanted to briefly touch on what the Mesopotamians had achieved, culturally, over the past few hundred years. Among the disciplines that became highly developed during the Neo-Assyrian period were mathematics, astronomy, and medicine. The Mesopotamians were accomplished abstract thinkers, and seemed to enjoy manipulating numbers and solving difficult mathematical problems for their own sake. They were also expert observers and master list makers. Mesopotamian astronomers were able to extrapolate from data they obtained and predict events with a high degree of accuracy. They also divided the year into 12 months, each day into 24 hours, and each hour into 60 minutes, the same system we use today. And that's even more remarkable considering the rudimentary instruments they had to work with. Basically, a sundial, a water clock, and a polos, an instrument showing the shadow projected by a small ball hanging over a half-sphere. Mesopotamian physicians seem to have an implicit understanding of the concept of contagion, and their detailed records of symptoms, diagnoses, and prescriptions would feed into the development of later Greek medicine. Where the Mesopotamians sometimes fell down scientifically was in the area of synthesis. They never formed hypotheses and tested them out, or tried to correlate data to establish overarching theories. These critical aspects of the scientific method were added at around the same time by the Greeks, whose philosophical temperament was better suited to their development. Despite their fondness for abstract thinking and frequent neglect of practical applications, the Neo-Assyrians did develop the means to move large stone statue blocks over vast distances and construct long aqueducts across difficult terrain, which implies at least some understanding of physics and engineering. Despite these factors, the Neo-Assyrians are rarely credited for being patrons of Mesopotamian art or culture, because... Quite simply, anything they accomplished was entirely overshadowed by the heavy-handed nature of their rule. One example always brings this home for me. We have extensive documentation on how the Assyrians punished rebellious cities. Wholesale slaughter, mass deportation, and horrific mutilations were all common. And yet, how many times during this podcast have you heard about people rising up to challenge neo-Assyrian rule? were all these people just insanely brave or fiercely independent? Was life just incredibly cheap back then? Or was the nature of Neo-Assyrian rule just so brutal, so absolutely intolerable, that almost any other option seemed preferable? How many episodes have we been through now where a Neo Assyrian ruler conquered this, then looted that, then crushed this rebellion, then destroyed this enemy army, then deported this population from one end of the empire to the other? I admit, even to me, sometimes it seemed like I should have retitled this podcast series Neo Assyria and the People They Conquered. I was somewhat familiar with the Assyrians when I started work on this series. But what I really didn't have an appreciation for was the combination of how long they ruled, how many advanced societies they dominated, and how consistently brutal their tactics were. When it comes right down to it, the nature of Neo-Assyrian rule was perfectly summed up in the infamous credo of the Roman emperor Caligula, Odorant doom metuant, let them hate so long as they fear. Of course, the main question is, how long can an empire built on that foundation endure? Turns out, the answer is about 300 years. Just like the Bronze Age collapse, it started with radio silence. The last royal inscription left by Ashurbanipal is dated to 639 BC, the same year as his famous triumph. The last reference to him in an administrative document is dated to 631 BC. We know almost nothing for certain about the eight years in between. For an enormous empire with a well-developed bureaucracy, this was not a good sign. What do we think was happening? Well, the evidence hints at peripheral territories pulling away, tribute being withheld, centralized power waning. The likely culprit was the empire's own structure— Ashurbanipal was growing old and weak, and, as we'll learn shortly, lacked capable sons to succeed him. The problem with concentrating all the power at the top is that the system only works when a ruler is, well, pretty extraordinary. For decades, Ashurbanipal had met, even exceeded, this high standard, but he would be the last Neo-Assyrian king to do so. By the end of Ashurbanipal's reign, things had already disintegrated enough that we're not even sure of the year he died. While some sources credit him with ruling, or at least co-ruling, the empire until 627 BC, it appears more likely that he passed away in 631 BC. He left behind two momentous legacies— his enormous library of Mesopotamian learning and culture, and his enduring legend as both a wise ruler and fearsome warrior. What he took with him were the last underpinnings of Neo-Assyrian unity. Without his strength to hold the empire together, everything, everywhere, very quickly went to hell. It isn't until 616 BC that a detailed Babylonian chronicle picks up the historical threads. For the intervening years, we find ourselves in a curious position. Fragmentary portions of the Babylonian Chronicle shed some light on this lost decade. We also have a detailed account of the period written by the Greek historian Herodotus, which sounds great, right? Unfortunately, even though his history of the period reads well, it's widely considered unreliable for a few reasons. One is that much of it is based on later Persian oral tradition. The other is that he was trying to fit Near Eastern history into a predetermined framework of successive great empires. He knew about Assyria, and he knew about Persia, so in between them, he raised to imperial status what had been, in reality, a loosely organized group of tribes from the Zagros Mountains called the Medes. The Medes had been considered a regional threat by Assyria since at least the time of Sargon II, but Ashurbanipal's total destruction of Elam had allowed them to extend their influence widely over the Zagros Mountains and into adjacent territories. After entering the region back in the early 9th century BC, the Medes had grown wealthy through domination of the Khorasan Road, the great trade route between Mesopotamia and the regions of central Iran and beyond. Under Sargon II, Assyria had seized this area, broken it up into provinces, built fortresses, and levied taxes on the vast flow of overland trade, mostly paid in horses. Other Median tribes had remained independent, and Sargon II recorded receiving tribute from 22 of their chiefs. Over the succeeding years, the Medes often served the Assyrians as mercenaries and may have learned advanced military techniques from their masters. What Herodotus asserts with far less certainty is that the Medes had been unified as early as 700 BC under a ruler known as Deoses, a former Menaean provincial governor who was eventually captured and exiled to Syria by Sargon II. His son, Phaortes, was then killed in battle by Ashurbanipal, and for the next decade the Medes came under domination of a Scythian king named Medius. The beginning of supposed Scythian rule over Media corresponds with the latter years of Ashurbanipal. And indeed, upon Ashurbanipal's death, the Scythians, along with the Sumerians, Medes, Persians, and other nomadic tribes, did come swarming en masse into Neo-Assyrian territories. Unfortunately, when they did, the empire was in no shape to put up a fight. Upon Ashurbanipal's death in 631 BC, the kingship had fallen to his son, Ashur-Etil-Elani, or Ashur, Hero of the Gods. The flood of nomadic raiders apparently caught the new king on his heels, and the Assyrian army quickly assumed a defensive posture. While the old capital of Nimrud was sacked and burned by the Scythians, the superior defenses of Nineveh afforded better protection. Ashur-Etil-Elani decided to ride out the storm there, along with the bulk of Assyria's regular military. Unable to capture Nineveh, the nomads soon lost interest, and continued onward toward the coast, where they stacked the Philistine city of Ashkelon. It was only when they turned southward, toward Egypt, that they encountered their first real resistance. The pharaoh Samtik I, in the 34th year of his long 54-year reign, had continued his policy of close ties with the Hellenic world, inviting colonists from the Greek mainland and elsewhere to settle in Egypt and serve in his armed forces. As a result, Egypt was unified and powerful enough to confront the nomadic raiders, and managed, probably through a mix of military force and bribery, to drive them back northwards. Spent from their series of assaults and laden with booty, the tribes rode back across Mesopotamia to their mountain homeland again, without any apparent neo-Assyrian interference. Again, not a good sign. Around 627 BC, upon the death of the Babylonian king Kandalanu, an Assyrian general named Sin Shumu Lishur seized power in Babylonia, or at least over a few Babylonian cities, including the Assyrian administrative capital of Nippur. Wow, if Babylonia is rebelling, you know it's... well, okay, that part is pretty much business as usual. A second son of Ashurbanipal, named Sin-Sharishkun, or Sin as appointed the king, led an army to Nippur and quickly ousted the usurping general. Shortly afterward, and really, why not, Sin-Sharishkun set up shop in Babylon and declared himself king of Babylonia probably a surprise to his brother, who, as far as he was concerned, was still ruling both kingdoms from Nineveh. So, I guess we all know what comes next. Yep, several years of violent, brutal civil war. Much of it waged in southern Mesopotamia, and with various cities backing various factions at various times. Meanwhile, while Assyria's attention was diverted, more and more provinces and vassal states took the opportunity, quietly, to slip out from under neo-Assyrian rule. And, oh yeah, while I was reading that last sentence, Babylon just revolted again. Except, the year is 626 BC, and this rebellion is going to shape up a little bit different. The latest usurper, like many before him, hailed from the Chaldean tribe, the Bitkaldu, a native of the southern marshes that bordered on the ruins of Elam. Even his Akkadian name, Nabu apul usur Nabu Protect the Sun, hardly set him apart from numerous others who'd played musical chairs over the past few centuries on the Babylonian throne. It's only when you call him by the Hebraic approximation of his Akkadian name, Nabopolassar, that you start getting the hint that this guy just might mean serious trouble. Nabopolassar first came onto the scene just prior to the Assyrian civil war, stirring up street fighting in Babylon against Sharishkun's occupation forces. Once Sin-Sharishkun left the city to war against his brother, Nabopolassar seized power in Babylon and proclaimed a new Babylonian ruling dynasty, variously termed the 11th or Chaldean or Neo-Babylonian ruling dynasty he surmised, correctly, that the fighting between the sons of Ashurbanipal would provide him with the necessary time to secure his power base and be ready, both politically and militarily, to take on the eventual victor. Three years later, in 623 BC, Sinsharishkun killed his brother, Ashur-Ettololani, in battle near the city of Nippur, and proclaimed himself sole king of Assyria. Like his brother before him, he also claimed dominion over Babylonia, and immediately set his sights on the Chaldean Usurper. Just as he was preparing to strike, a major revolt in Assyria drew sinsharish armies back north. For the next six years, the Assyrian king was forced to divide his attention, energy, and resources between quelling rebellions at home and countering Nabopolassar's designs in Babylonia. Constant warfare raged across Mesopotamia, and the general anarchy was reflected in the almost total lack of records from the period. By 616 BC, Sin Sharishkun had managed to reassert control over core Assyrian territories. However, he'd mostly failed in containing Nabopolisar, who'd gone on to capture the important city of Nippur and was now in firm control of the lands of Sumer and Akkad with his armies depleted from a decade of brutal warfare, since Sharishkun had little hope of forcibly dislodging the Chaldean usurper. He may have planned for an extended stalemate, giving him time enough to rebuild the armies of Assur for yet another assault on the rebellious southern kingdom. Unfortunately, the Chaldean king also had plans of his own. Marching up the Euphrates, Nabopolassar attacked and besieged the major Assyrian cities of Arapha and Assur. The assault, though ultimately unsuccessful, was enough to seriously spook the Assyrian king. In an unprecedented move, and a clear sign of the desperation of the times, Sin Sharishkun put out diplomatic feelers for an alliance with Assyria's old enemy, Egypt. Even more surprisingly, the pharaoh Samtik accepted the proposal. Egypt had apparently been unnerved by the recent Scythian invasion, and was also concerned about threatening moves by another growing regional power, the Medes. Under their latest ruler, Syaxares, the Medes had driven the Scythians from the Median capital of Ecbatana, reorganized and modernized their army, and declared themselves free from all foreign domination. Still more a collection of tribes than a unified state, the Medes had likely elevated Syaxaries, known as Umak-Ishtar to the Assyrians, to a position of leadership based on his exceptional military skill. Like other mountain tribes before them, going all the way back to the Gutians who'd plagued the Akkadian king Naram-Sin, the Medes looked down upon the wealthy lowlands of Mesopotamia, racked by chaos and civil war, and decided that the area was once again ripe for conquest. Syaxares gathered the tribes of the Zagros, Medes and Persians foremost among them, and also used common hatred of Assyria to forge a military alliance with the Arartian king Aramena, son of Sarduri III. In 615 BC, these combined armies moved westward into Assyria. Their first targets were the same major Assyrian cities recently attacked by Nabopolassar's forces, Arapha and Assur. Except they succeeded where the Chaldeans' armies had failed. By the end of 614 B.C., both cities had been taken, with the ancient capital of Assur singled out for special treatment. The city was looted, razed, the majority of the population massacred, and the remainder carried off as slaves. The only previous time Assur had been sacked by the Mitanni king Shaushtatar over 800 years before, the damage had been mild by comparison. The Matani had considered control over a functional Assyria an asset in the great game of late Bronze Age power politics. The Medes, by contrast, wanted nothing less than Assyria's total destruction. For the Assyrians, the fall of Assur, city of their origin, former capital, irreducible core of their previous empires, home of their god, and final resting place for all their kings, must have been an earth-shattering blow, a sign of a fundamental change in the order of things." True, Asur was not Nineveh, and Shinsharishkun still had powerful defenses and a formidable military at his disposal. But if Assyrian hopes managed to survive the fall of Assur, they were soon to be struck an even more fatal blow. It was under the broken walls of Assur, the fires of its destruction still smoldering, that the Median ruler Syaxeres first met the Babylonian king Nabopolassar they quickly found their aims to be entirely harmonious, and formally sealed an alliance through the marriage of the Median princess, Amidas, to the Chaldean crown prince, Nabu-Kaduri-User, or nabu preserved the firstborn, better known to us as Nebuchadnezzar II. As the historian Georges Roux summarizes, from then on, Babylonians and Medes were to fight hand-in-hand, and Assyria was doomed. Despite the now overwhelming odds against them, the Assyrians certainly weren't going down without a fight. In 613 BC, Sincharishkun rallied the armies of Assur and led them into a series of battles against the Babylonians and Medes, checking further enemy advances for the better part of a year. However, any aid they hoped to receive from their Egyptian allies was slow in coming, and in the end would be too late to do anything but prolong the inevitable. By 612 BC, the Assyrian king had been driven back behind the walls of Nineveh, and could only watch impotently as more and more enemy armies, including Scythians, Sumerians, Menaeans, and even Elamite remnants, joined the Chaldeans, Medes, and Persians already encircling the great capital. Never in history had an empire grown to be so hated, and never had so many enemies gleefully gathered to watch it fall. Inside the walls, the mood must have been a mixture of absolute terror and total astonishment. Less than thirty years had passed since Asher Ashurbanipal had held his great triumph, symbolically putting his foot on the neck of the entire Near East, and less than twenty since the great king had died. How had absolutely everything, everywhere, gone so horribly wrong so quickly? Ultimately, they could only be certain of one thing. Assur, their great and terrible god, had finally deserted them. Nineveh fell three months into its siege, and enemy armies poured through its gates, eager to take violent revenge for centuries of abuse and oppression. The Medes eagerly smashed tablets recording their earlier submission to Assyria. Nearly every relief of an Assyrian king was defaced, chiseled, and scarred into oblivion. Homes were looted and burned, citizens slaughtered, and Assyrian soldiers likely made their last stands defending the royal palace. They were joined there by their king, sin last surviving son of Ashurbanipal, and final heir to the great rulers of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. It's not recorded which of Assyria's many enemies held the sword that finally cut him down. To say that Nineveh was razed to the ground is probably, for once, fairly accurate. Two centuries later, when the Greek historian Xenophon and his mercenary army passed the location, they were totally unaware that anything had ever stood there, let alone the enormous, sprawling, one-time capital city of the entire Near East. Nineveh was lost, and would remain lost for thousands of years. But its eventual rediscovery in the mid-18th century A.D. would finally fulfill Ashurbanipal's greatest wish, to preserve the heritage of the past for the sake of distant days. Next episode will cover the aftermath of Assyria's destruction, as pockets of resistance, bolstered by belated Egyptian support, continue to battle against the tide of history. We'll watch the establishment of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, look at the fates of former Assyrian vassals, and eventually resume our discussion of the growing Western powers of Greece, Rome, and Carthage. All this, or as much as I can get to, next time on The Ancient World.